Really? Thanks, Andy. Thank you very much. Um, guys, this is a, a bit of a weird experience. I'm hoping you can all hear me okay. Um, Andy said, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at that of, of Mark's gospel today. If you've got a Bible, um, I'm hoping you've got it beside you or on your phone. And um, we're going to be looking at that. Uh, we're going to be looking at some verses from that. But just want to start by saying that this weekend is the best weekend of the year. There is no doubt in my mind that Easter is the best weekend of the whole year. I know that for many of us, this is the weirdest Easter we might have ever had. But this weekend is the best weekend of the year for every Christian, for, for every believer in Jesus. And that's because 2000 years ago, the best Easter and possibly the weirdest actual Easter came together when Jesus, the son of a carpenter from Nazareth in Galilee, in Israel, in the Middle East, when Jesus, the son of God, eternal creator, sovereign over all, when Jesus died and came back to life. That's what we celebrate this Easter weekend. We celebrate, yeah, we, we celebrate, which sounds really weird, the death of Jesus on a Roman cross. We celebrate the facts, the facts that he came back to life. And this evening, we're going to look at what one record of Jesus's life tells us about this best weekend in the whole of human history. We're going to look at how the second half of Mark's gospel tells us what Jesus planned, what he achieved for you and for me over the best weekend in history. So just as a little bit of a reminder, last week, Phil took us through the first eight chapters of Mark, chapters that are bursting with a flood of evidence showing the good news that Jesus is God. That Jesus has supernatural power and supernatural authority. And Phil showed us that in Mark's gospel, people either saw him, Jesus, as a threat and not a promise, or they saw his power as a promise and not a threat. And many people, even today, many people reject Jesus after reaching the right conclusion, after reaching the conclusion that he is God. But So many of us see him as a threat to our way of living. We don't see him as the promise of something better. And if that's you today, then go back to the talk last week that Phil did, not right now, maybe afterwards, but you can find it on the church's YouTube channel. And listen to what Mark in those first few chapters is saying to you today. It might have been written 2000 years ago, but it is still so relevant today. But today we're going to be looking at at what Jesus came to do, what he was aiming to do, and what the result was of what he actually did. That sounds like a lot, but we're going to do that in two slots, a bit like we did last week. And in the first slot, we're going to look at what he came to do. And in the second slot, we'll see what he achieved for each one of us. So first, let's look at what Jesus came to do. This is the, the easiest bit because Mark records for us what Jesus himself said that he had come to do. In chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, you can find it in chapter 8, verse 31, Mark records this. He, and that's talking about Jesus, Jesus, he, then began to teach them, and he's teaching his disciples. That the son of man, and the son of man was a title that Jesus used for himself. 
the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Or you can skip on into into chapter 9 and verse 31 again, where it says this. Because he was teaching his disciples, again, Jesus teaching his disciples, he said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Again, he's saying that he's going to die. And three days later, come to life. Skip on again in Mark's gospel into chapter 10 and verse 34, where it says this. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. These are all such similar phrases, but don't mistake how amazing these are. Mark has recorded for us here what Jesus, but he said this before his arrest, before he's tried, before he's found guilty in that kangaroo court before he's executed and before he comes back to life. Jesus is very precisely predicting his own death and resurrection. This is astounding, isn't it? If Jesus was an ordinary bloke, there was no way that what he said would happen would happen. I can't even predict what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow, let alone with such precise detail predict what's going to happen to me in a month's time. This is yet another sign that Jesus is God, that he can see the whole of history laid out in front of him. None of it is a surprise. None of it is unexpected, as if he would need to adapt his plans to some spanners that we might throw in the works. No, this is a meticulous, precise, well-defined, well-considered plan. One that has been eternity in the making. One that takes place through Jesus' death and resurrection. Through his death on a cross, Good Friday is the day that we mark Jesus' death. And it might seem strange to spend a day celebrating someone's execution. But we'll see later tonight what Jesus' death achieved for us. But right now, think that his death had been planned right from the beginning. It's there in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. And through the rest of the Bible, we can see that his death will play a crucial part in the Saviour's mission. But just as his death had been planned, so had his resurrection. That's there through the pages of history in the Bible too. Even the length of time between his death and his resurrection was precise and exactly fulfilled. Some people have said that that the Christian faith rests on this one event on Jesus' return from the grave. If it is true, then it is life-changing. It is history-altering. It demands our attention. If it's false, then anyone who believes it should be pitied. But today is Easter Sunday. It's the day when millions and billions of people around the world are celebrating this fact We believe that this is the truth. We have these Gospels that record so many people who witnessed the events. Many people who witnessed the empty tomb. 
Many people who saw the risen Jesus. And we, we had that explained to us this morning by Phil when he was going through that, that story that's recorded for us of Jesus' encounter with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. His resurrection could not be disproved by the authorities. Now this weekend might have been filled with chocolate and hot cross buns. It might have been different to any other Easter we've ever celebrated. But it is still the weekend where we celebrate the greatest event in history, where the hold that sin had on us is broken. When we are set free by the death of the Son of God, when we can behold, when we can see an empty tomb. It's the weekend when God's perfect plan is fully achieved. God, Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection. We've seen that. Mark's gospel records that for us over and over again. Jesus taught his followers that this was going to take place. So what did his death and resurrection achieve? Well, we're going to come back to look at that after a short break. We're going to have a song now. Andy's going to bring that up for us on his screen. He's going to share that with all of us so that we can look at that and listen to it. The words will appear at the bottom of the video. So if you'd like to sing, do sing along with that as well. It will be muted. Andy's told us it will be muted. So we won't hear anything else. And it's a song called Man of Sorrows, which sounds like such a depressing title. But the words are all about Jesus, his death pain and isolation that he felt at that moment about his resurrection. Excellent. Thank you very much, Andy. Thank you. Um, Well, before we sang, before we broke to do that, we saw that Jesus taught his followers that he was going to die and come back to life. That in itself would be pretty amazing. But Jesus didn't do this just to show that he could predict the future like this amazing clairvoyance. He performed some miracles in his life already, which you can read about in the first half of Mark's gospel and in the other gospels too. But he didn't come back to life to perform an even more amazing miracle to perform the most amazing miracle. It wasn't so that we would have some sort of ta-da moment. Jesus' death and resurrection achieved so much more. The song we've just sung spoke about both of the things that we're going to look at. It spoke about a price having been paid for us, about a debt fully paid so that we can be reconciled to God. A price paid to be reconciled to God. And it is those two things that we're going to be looking at for the rest of our time together. For the next eight hours, we're going to go through the second half of Mark's gospel. Uh, yeah, don't worry, I'm only joking. You know, if we went through every single verse of the rest of Mark's gospel, it might take us that long. But we're, we've only got a short time. So what we're going to do is as we look through the second half of Mark's gospel, we're going to pick up a couple of verses that help us to see that we have been ransomed from death into God's very presence. We have been ransomed from death into God's very presence. So the first thing we're going to look at is that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. So again, turn to your Bibles. And in chapter 10, verse 45 of Mark's gospel, 
it records that Jesus says. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't know about you, but what picture does the word ransom form in your mind? For me, I imagine somebody taken against their will, captive by some evil people who demand money from um, the captive's family. And we're still all too familiar with kidnappings and hijackings today with these sorts of demands for ransoms. We can hear stories from people. We can read books written by ransom survivors who felt that they had no hope, whose situation seemed so bleak until they were rescued, until the ransom was paid for their lives. And that's what a ransom is. It is a a payment to free, to release somebody who is captive. It means to buy back a person from slavery or from prison or even death normally by the payment of a price for the hostage. But but what have payments and, and captives got to do with Jesus? What have they got to do with us? What is Jesus trying to say here? Well, I struggle to understand a lot of what the Bible says. There are parts of God's words that confuse me and take a long while to get my head around. But I'm so glad that God paints pictures for us to understand what his rescue means, what he is saying to us. And this is one of those pictures. It's of something called salvation, that God has given us this picture to help us get our heads around what this resurrection and death achieves for us. There are other pictures in the Bible that that help us with that as well. We can see pictures of something called redemption or atonement. So, you know, do give the Bible a read. Mention all of those throughout. But ransom is the one that Jesus here uses at this time. And we are the captives. We are the hostages being held, trapped, imprisoned, enslaved. The Bible often talks about the fact that we are held captive by by something called sin. Sometimes we're willingly held by sin. But that death is what's in store for anybody held in this sort of captivity. I don't know if you've ever heard about a condition called Stockholm Syndrome. Well, there have been examples of times when hostages have developed irrational feelings towards their captors. In fact, in some cases, the hostages experience a powerful, primitive, positive feeling towards their captor. They're in denial that this person who put them in this situation is going to do anything bad to them in their mind. They think that this person is the only person who's going to let them live the sort of life they want. And this is what sin does to us. It holds us captive. It makes us think that the only thing that will allow us to live the right life is it, is this sin. We have developed such positive feelings towards sin that we can't see the reality. We can only see the lie. And the world is in the grip of rampant Stockholm syndrome. We can't see that the handcuffs are unbreakable. The shackles holding us are indestructible. That the light doesn't penetrate into our cell, into our prison. 
We can't see the darkness and the cold. We can't see how scary and frightening it is. And we can't see where that life is leading us. We believe that sin gives us the best life possible. But that's not what the Bible tells us. But there's no way to get free ourselves. We can't break those bonds that hold us. We need somebody to pay a ransom for our lives to be freed. And this verse tells us that Jesus came to give his life, his own life as the ransom price to save us. He freed us from our chains. He made it possible for us to see the light again, to be able to live life to the full, to live the life we were designed, we were created to live. The chains that we couldn't break are smashed apart by the price Jesus paid. The guy called Mark Green, who's the director of a Christian organization called the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. He um, lost his father to coronavirus last week. But in his blog that he does each week, he wrote about thinking about Easter and about his father. And he wrote this. That's why on this day, Jesus gave his life willingly as a ransom for many. To wash us clean by the priceless blood of his infinite forgiveness, heal us anew and send us into our days full of him, full of life, abounding in love. This price, this payment wasn't a lump of money to set us free. The ransom price was Jesus' very life. Jesus, who is God gave up his own life to set us free. He did this willingly. He did this knowingly. He planned this from the dawn of time. His words here tell us that he knew that the price that had to be paid for your life and for mine was his own life. That was the only way to break us free from the captivity that we are in. And do not mistake it. Do not kid yourselves to think that you're not a captive. We all are. And we need Jesus. We need his death. We need his resurrection to break the chains that we cannot break to set us free. Okay, so we're free. We're no longer hostages. We're free to do what? Well, that's where the second thing that Jesus' death and resurrection achieved comes in. The record of Jesus' very death helps us to see that because of his death, we can now be with God. We were once separated from him, but Jesus' death means that we are free to come into God's presence. Skip on a few chapters in, in Mark's Gospel to chapter 15. And in chapter 15, I'm going to read three verses. I'm going to read verses 37 to 39. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Mark's account of Jesus' life takes us to the foot of the cross. We hear Jesus breathe his last breath. The son of God is dead. 
the one with power and authority, like no one else, has died. The Roman centurion, tasked with running these executions, sees that Jesus is dead, but he recognises that this was no ordinary death. He recognises that this was something extraordinary. That Jesus' death was not the death of a normal criminal, and he had seen many. He understands that Jesus is divine and that this death was something special. But tucked in between those verses about the scene of Jesus' death, we get this strange comment. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why include this weird comment about what happened to a strip of fabric now? This verse about material being ripped was one of the most breathtaking verses for me when I was exploring Christianity. So let me explain why. Let me let me see if I can explain what's happening here. But to do so, I've got to go a long way back. When you read the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, you get this initial picture of a perfect world with God in charge and people, Adam and Eve, living in harmony with God. We see God's people in God's presence under his perfect rule. But Adam and Eve soon mess it up. God gives them one command to follow and they rebel. They disobey God. They sin. That's what sin is. It is rebellion, disobedience against God. They think that they know best and we think that we know best and we don't need to follow God's ways. Well, anyway, you can read in Genesis that that God is holy. God is perfect. He can't have the pollution of sin anywhere near him. So he banishes Adam and Eve from his presence out of the Garden of Eden. We don't have this perfect picture anymore. God's people are not in his presence under his perfect rule. And after this terrible start to the Bible, the rest of the Bible describes how God precisely will restore his people into his presence under his perfect rule. The rest of the Bible is about God's actions to rescue us from this dire situation, to rescue you and me. And slowly the pieces are revealed through God's word. And at one point, the people of God, the nation of Israel, are asked to make a temple so that God can for a time in some small way live with his people. So they make this temple to the exact specification that God gave them. There are various areas and sections to the temple and various things within it. But the important part for us today is the part where God would dwell amongst his people. And this was called the Holy of Holies. It was the most sacred space where where the high priest would enter only once a year to offer sacrifice to God on behalf of all the people for their sins. And the Holy of Holies was separated from the rest of the temple by a strong, thick curtain. This curtain meant that people couldn't approach God directly, individually, but only through priests. The curtain kept people safe from the effect of of what would happen if sinful people came into the presence of a sinless God. It protected people from that death. And this is the curtain that was torn at the very moment that Jesus died. 
This is the curtain that we are transported to look at in those verses that we just read. At the instant of Jesus's death, the barrier between us and God was torn from top to bottom. Jesus's death means that we don't need a high priest to sacrifices on our behalf to make us acceptable to God. His death means that God sees us as perfect, as as perfect as his own son. We don't need the safety barrier of the temple curtain. Jesus' death has brought us to a point where God looks at us and sees a flawless, sinless, spotless, unspoiled son or daughter. So I really hope and I pray that you can now see that what we have recorded for us in the gospel really is the greatest weekend ever. That celebrating this weekend really is the highlight of the year for anyone who believes in what Jesus' death and resurrection achieved. These things that Jesus said would happen did happen. But you have to accept that this really took place. Otherwise, you're still in those chains. You're still a hostage. You're not free to come and be with God. Jesus offers you a free gift, a ransom freely given, an access to God, one for you. But will you accept that offer? Will you accept it? Mark Green, uh, talking again in, in his blog this week, this time about the conversion of one of the two robbers who died next to Jesus, says this. And that's why on this day, Jesus, in the midst of his death agony, promised forever life to the thief who asked and who could do nothing except the one work God required to trust in him as Lord, as Saviour. Did you hear that? All you need to do is trust him as Lord and as Saviour. And if you want to do that today, you can. You just need to accept what Jesus' death and resurrection did for you. You need to say sorry for the ways that you've disobeyed or rebelled against God in your life. And that you trust that Jesus is your Lord, your master and your saviour. It's that easy. And if you want to talk more about this, then please do get in touch with someone at the church and speak to them. Please do hang on afterwards if you want to talk about that on the Zoom call. There are all sorts of ways that we can explore that together. We can explore what Jesus' death and resurrection have achieved for you. This is the greatest weekend of the year. It's the one where we celebrate the greatest weekend in history. When Jesus, the carpenter's son and God's son, died to pay the ransom to free us, to free us so that we can be in God's presence, just as God planned from the very beginning of time itself. Jesus paid the ransom price so that you can be with God. We're going to go into a time of prayer now. And as Andy said, we're going to go over to the to the Diggins household now so that Maureen and Andy Diggins can lead us through a time in prayer. But like I said, if you want to talk about what Jesus's death and resurrection have achieved for you. Don't waste a moment. Talk to somebody about it today.